Just a reminder on our calendar coming up next week, Thursday is Thanksgiving, and we will not be having class on Thursday night. We will have class on Tuesday night, but we won't have class on Tuesday night, December the 5th, right, or 6th? I think it's the, what? 6th. The pre-trib is 5th through the 7th. So just keep that on your on your calendars. And then one other update on the team in Natal, where Jeff Phipps is. As I've announced, they've got two conferences going. There's one that started last Friday, November 11th, and the second one, and they'll be going until the 22nd. There's a $3,000 financial need. I have no idea how that's been filled, but we've been announcing that. Also, Jeff has a blog that's being posted on the WestHoustonBibleChurch.org um, website, so you can go there. There's also a news item on the right side of the DBM news page that links you to the West Houston Bible Church page, so you can go there to get information about uh, what's going on down in Natal. I think that pretty much covers... Hmm. Saturday. Thank you, Bert. Saturday we'll be having our men's prayer breakfast, and I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about the election and a biblical perspective on what's happening in this country and a biblical uh, framework for understanding what's going on politically. So um, we'll be doing that on Saturday morning. Okay? How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, your grace is just so so bountiful to us. You provide for us in so many different ways, and you've given us so much in relation to our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. We cannot even enumerate all of the assets that you have given us spiritually and all of the privileges that you have given us. And one of those is your word, that we have your word revealed to us and translated in a way in which we can understand it and we can memorize it and study it and read it. Father, we're so thankful that we have all these things to teach us about you and about our Lord Jesus Christ and what he means to us, not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us as we go through these passages. In Christ's name, amen. As we have seen going into 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, he talks about submission to government. Then he talks to slaves about submission to masters. Then in chapter 3, he'll talk to wives about uh, submission to uh, husbands. He will also talk to husbands about how they should relate to their wives. And then he goes on from there, and he talks 
in a more general sense about suffering. Uh, suffering when you're doing right, suffering when you're doing wrong. And what undergirds all of this is his understanding of what happens with Christ in his person and his work at the cross. So in some sense, he seems repetitive. He keeps going back to this to make sure that we understand this. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful thing to do because it constantly reminds us that methodologically, one of the things we should do as we think through anything is to go back to the Trinity, go back to the essence box, go back to the hypostatic union, go back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that and we think that th- through in terms of our own uh, problems, adversity, then it really helps us to understand things. So what I'm doing as we go through this is looking at these various doctrines. They're all tied together as we go through this. Humility, grace orientation, and submission. And the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight is finishing up chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. But then I want to look, and I know I've threatened this for the last two weeks, look at Philippians 2, 5 through 10, because that's just such a foundational passage from Paul to understand what's going on here. Now, just to remind you, we saw in 1 Peter two eighteen the command to slaves to be submissive to your masters with all fear, with all respect or reverence. That's the idea in fear there. And the word there is hupotasso, which is the word for submit all through here and in other passages. And it is the idea that we are to volitionally bring ourselves under under control. It's an imperatival type of participle, and that's the key. We are to submit why? Verse 19 explains, for this is grace. The New King James translated, com, translated that commendable, but it's the Greek word charis, which just should be translated, this is grace. It's grace to submit to those who are in authority over you. And so therefore, a person's uh, a submission in whatever area, whether it's uh, in the family or at work or business or military or school, that is a barometer of your grace orientation. This is grace. If because of conscience towards God, that is following the norms and standards in your soul where you are uh, doing that which is right toward God, one endures grief. If we're doing the right thing and we suffer negative consequences for it, then that is grace. It is part of grace orientation. So that's what uh, Peter says here. This is grace. And goes on to say that again in verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Uh, Well, you know you did wrong, so therefore you're taking it like you should. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is grace before God. You're demonstrating that you understand God's grace and you're exhibiting that towards others. It's the same word that you have in verse verse 19. And then in verse 21 we read, for to, for to this you were called. And this is an interesting word here that called kaleo has the idea of being called in terms of salvation but it also has the idea of an invitation, 
an invitation. Now, what would that remind you of? It ought to remind you, especially with the context here, of the invitation like that, that Jesus gave to follow him in terms of being a disciple. Being a disciple, as we'll see, is different from simply being uh, being saved. Being saved is the result of trusting in Christ as your Savior, and being uh, a disciple is something else. So we'll look at this a little bit when, more when we get down to the word follow. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So it's like Peter just sort of jumps from talking about Christ suffering for us as a, or talking about submission to going into the, the whole dynamic of the cross. He talks about Christ suffering for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, what we see in this section all the way through here, where we look at verse 21, then we have a quote in verse 22 from Isaiah 53, 9, and then verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. And um, it, it's, it's almost a commentary on Isaiah 53, like a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. This is, is an expansion on that. When he reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't open his mouth. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He didn't open his mouth. Uh, but instead, he committed himself to him who judges righteously, turned it over to the Lord. So uh, that verse 22 takes us back to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9, and it reiterates the uh, impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he uh, had no sin. Now, the rest of this verse, as we look at this, in verses 24 and 25, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That language comes right out of Isaiah 53. Uh, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. That phrase comes right out of Isaiah 53. Verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, right out of Isaiah 53. So he's, he's commenting, he's taking Isaiah 53, which is about the suffering servant, and he's applying it directly to slaves and saying, you need to emulate the slave of all slaves, the servant of all servants, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't make you less of a person. And I talked about that last time. And in probably in our culture where we see this conflict the most is in the realm of women's rights and feminism and things of that nature. And the Bible has been completely twisted. And I went through this last time to give us a bit of an understanding of the, the, what we should be talking about here. And I thought I had just, I was just planning on just I'd removed the animation from this because I just wanted to talk about the issues. We have a foundation of all thought, and in this illustration, the iceberg in the background represents any issue in life, 
And usually we talk about what's above the surface, which is that part of the iceberg that's visible. And recently, with all of the election and everything, of course, there's all this debate about specifics in terms of the election and uh, politics. And it could be just anything. It could be creation versus evolution. It could be on the interpretation of the Constitution. You could be talking about specific foreign policies, a relationship of war, the relationship of government, uh, federal government to the states, how you interpret the Constitution, any number of things. But we tend to argue details that are above the surface. But what's below the surface of every issue are these aspects. First of all, metaphysics. Metaphysic is just a fancy philosophical term. It means beyond the physical. Okay, meta is a Greek preposition that means beyond. Physic is a word for the for the physical. So what is there that exists beyond the physical? The physical is what we can see, what we can measure. It's the universe. It's the stars, the solar system, the galaxies, the earth, all the things that we can see. What is there beyond the physical? What is the ultimate reality? Is it God, something personal, or is it something impersonal, such as matter or energy? One of, uh, I'm not sure uh, what she is, uh, a celebrity of some sort. Uh, Maybe you've heard the name Lena Dunham. And I read today, she's very, very liberal and very disappointed that her candidate did not win. And in order to assuage her grief, she went out into the beautiful red-rocked canyons around Sedona, Arizona, which is a big New Age site where you can get in touch with the universe. How you can get in touch with something impersonal, I don't know. But that's what she's done. And she's been talking to the rocks, trying to find an answer. Now, we sort of joke about that and shake our heads, but there's a lot of people who believe that, and we as Christians need to figure out ways to communicate to them, not in this context when they're grieving, and what you see is so many of them, and and I've heard some great terms on um, various places, uh, emotional, uh, what is it, emotional incontinence. That's what we're seeing a lot of emotional incontinence or uh, emotional arson. That's another term. Uh, I kind of like emotional incontinence and constipation of the brain. They work together. And we're seeing a lot of that. But we have to wait till things calm down before you get a chance to talk to people because they're just they're, they're everything is on edge and they don't really know how to talk or communicate. But this is where the, we have to drive the conversation is and the best way to do that, I find, is asking questions. When God shows up to talk to Adam and Eve after they sinned, he doesn't walk into the garden and say, yeah, you ate the fruit and now you're dead. He doesn't do it like that. He says, where are you? Now, he knows perfectly well where they are and why they are where they are. But he needs to get them to think it through for themselves and to come to that realization on their own without being told. And see, a problem a lot of us have is that we want to tell people what the answer is without walking them through a process of self-discovery. 
And we need to learn to be patient because that process of self-discovery can take about 10 years sometimes, and the process of telling them can take about 10 seconds, and we're impatient. We need to learn to ask the right kinds of questions just to get them to think about it. And don't hit them with five questions because they can barely think their way through the first one. If you hit them with five questions all at one time, you've just overwhelmed them and they just shut down. It's that cerebral constipation thing. So we need to learn to be patient and to just say, well, I wonder if, I wonder why, can you help me understand, you know, asking questions like that to get them to think below the surface. Um, And it depends on the person. It depends on circumstances, a lot of other things, but to get them uh, to go through here. So we, we realize things build in, in the way thought is constructed from ultimate reality and how that works out in terms of how do you know truth? Oh, I believe the universe, the universe, we can communicate the universe. Really? How do you do that? How do you know what the universe says? I used to like to do this in conversations with charismatics and say, I have the gift of tongues. Really? Does, and, and when do you use that? Well, when I pray. Really? Does that help your prayer life? Oh, yeah, God answers my prayers more when I pray, pray in tongues. Do you understand what you're saying? No. Then how do you know he's answering your prayers? Just ask questions. And don't try to be pat, pat, and try not to be patronizing. Okay, then that takes us to ethics, what is right and wrong. Whenever somebody makes decisions, it's just so wrong that so-and-so got elected. Really? Why? What's your evidence? Ask questions. But drive it down. How do you know it's true? Why it's wrong? How do you know it's true? What's your, what's your evidence? What do you mean by justice? Where do you get your values for justice and injustice? And then go on down. Well, does that come from the universe? That's impersonal. How can the universe know what right and wrong is? That's imputing personhood. If it's got personhood, then maybe it's not impersonal, but it's personal. Let's think about that a little bit. Okay? So the logical progression is from the bottom up. As I pointed out last time, the pressures of life uh, push us down to think more and more about these foundational foundational issues. And these are the real issues over here that are usually ignored, but that's where the conversation needs to take place. So when we talk about submission and authority, and people say, well, if I submit, that means I'm not as good as the other person. And you'll hear that either overtly stated or implied, that if you if I have to obey them, then, but they're, they're, they're not very good. I remember my first church, an issue that came up was the role of women in ministry. And we had, there were three adult Sunday school classes that were taught by women. And there were adult men in the class. And they had done this for a long time. And when I had candidated at that church, I was asked the, uh, the landmine question, well, what do you think about women teaching men the Bible? And I said, well, I think, uh, I said, my opinion doesn't matter, but the Apostle Paul says that women aren't supposed to do it. Women are not to teach men the Scripture. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And it's very, very clear. Well, 
some women in the congregation just never could get over that. But I was a, a wise beyond my year, years, and I knew that they had been doing this, and those three women had been teaching those Sunday school classes for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And that if I went in there and tried to change anything, then everything would just blow up. But my answer was something that stuck in the craw of several women in the church, and it eventually blew up. But that's another story. Uh, the reality is, is that we have to go back to look at what 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 the Scripture says. And when you talk about submission, and, and that's what they would say, well, nobody else, there's not a man in the church who can teach the Bible as good as I can. Not one. I've known the Bible a whole lot, and these men are all spiritual losers, and they don't know anything, but I can teach the Bible, so why shouldn't I? Because God said so, you shouldn't. That's right. And that's where you have to end. But you have to start with, is that valid reasoning? And how do you, and your presupposition is that submission means that you're not, makes you somehow less equal. And I pointed out last time, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says that we're all created in the image of God, male and female. He created them so that we're equal. But we have different roles that are assigned and that these roles are uh, in the Trinity, in the Godhead. And so we have God himself uh, represented the unity of God here in this slide, but he manifests himself or he also exists, rather, not manifests himself, but he also exists as three distinct persons with one essence. He's the Father, he's the Son, and he's the Holy Spirit. And this is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. He, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. But the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct beings and the father is equal to the son and the son is equal to the holy spirit and the holy spirit is equal to the father that is called metaphysical or ontological equality basically they're equal in essence but they are functionally distinct functionally distinct some theologians call it an economic distinction but we'll just use the word functional i think it communicates better the son obeys the father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit. So they have distinct roles. Does it mean because the Son submitted himself to the Father that he's less equal to the Father? And so we have to under, understand that that's the metaphysics. That's what it tells you what submission and obedience and humility are right there. If you don't understand the Trinity, you can't understand submission, humility, and obedience. On the other hand, if you make mistakes in the way you understand submission, humility, and obedience, then you'll end up with a heretical view of God. And this is what, what happened many times in, in church history. So I concluded this by saying that all human beings, slaves, wives, children, are equal in their being and essence, being in the image of God. Neither is superior in their essence to another. They are all equal. They're on the image of God. This is called an ontological or metaphysical equality. And that's that's what the, the, the uh, Declaration of Independence is talking about when it says all men are created equal. We're all equal in our being, whether you're born poor or rich, whether you're born short or 
fat or tall or male or female or British or American or Mexican or Bolivian or whatever, all are created equal. And that means they are equal before the law. It doesn't mean they have the same talents. It doesn't mean they, they, they're interchangeable. Men and women are not interchangeable because they're equal. That's part of the, ro- the, the sexual gender role distinction problem. It also goes back to this issue. Each has distinct roles that God created, just as in the Trinity, the Father's the planner, the Son carries out the plan, and the Spirit reveals the plan. These are economic or functional distinctions. So biblical submission differs from pagan submission in that paganism operates on power. It's, it's tyranny. It always seems to assert an ontological inequality. For example, in Islam, men are superior innately to women. Women are just marginally better than animals in some cases by nature. Okay, that's embedded within their theology. So, that's your review. First Peter 2.21. Paul's, I mean, Peter's reasoning is this, for to this, now to what? To this, that is submission, even submission in a harsh situation, when the master may be harsh, as in verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And so for to this, that is submission, that's you were called, you were invited. I'm going to use that term because the, this last word here, follow his steps, that directly brings in the idea of of discipleship that we find in Matthew. So you, to this you were invited. And when we look at the scripture and we we see that there are three kinds of followers. So the word that we have here for following in his footsteps is epakalutheo. Epakalutheo. And it means to follow, but it the basic root is akalutheo, and it has epi, which is a preposition prefix to it to intensify uh, its meaning. But we see this idea of following in the steps of Jesus. And when you go back and look at the Gospels, there are three kinds of followers. The first kind is those who were the curious, the multitudes. And there are a lot of people, some come up, come to church, and they're just curious. They're just interested. What's going on here? Does this have any answers for me? And so you have the, the curious multitudes in Matthew twelve fifteen, and also mentioned in Matthew fourteen thirteen. And as Jesus began to teach more and more about what it meant to follow him, uh, John 5 says they began to leave. Second, there are those who are believers but they're not committed. They're justified. They have believed in Jesus as the Messiah, so they're going to spend eternity in heaven, but they're not real learners. They're not going to submit to Jesus' authority. 
And there are a number of those. There were probably some of those among the disciples that left. See, the word disciple is a term that a lot of people think is synonym for a believer. But disciple doesn't mean a believer. It means a learner, a student. And the term disciple is even used to people in the, in the New Testament who were not believers, like Judas Iscariot. And there were others that were not believers. They were just temporary students to find out uh, Jesus is an interesting rabbi. He's different from everybody else. So let me just learn learn from him. So they're not real learners. And then there are those that Jesus talked to and gave a special command to. And these were uh, disciples in the in the technical sense of the term, not just the twelve, but those who were committed to following him, to growing to spiritual maturity, and to uh, submitting to his authority. Now, there's another phrase that's used here in 1 Peter 2.21 that we ought to pay attention to, and that is this phrase. It's translated for us. For to this you were called, that's invited to be a disciple, because Christ also suffered for us. That's the foundation. And in the Greek, it's huper, Humon, the preposition is huper, which is a preposition of substitution, can be translated in place of or instead of Christ suffered in our place, Christ suffered instead of us. Uh, that's the idea there. It's found a number of different places. That's the substitution uh, preposition. We see it in um, indicated in in the methodology, rather, in 1 Peter 2, 21 and uh, I mean, excuse me, First Peter one eighteen to 19, where, where Peter told us just, we studied this just back in the last chapter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now, what does that phrase mean? We talked about this on Sunday morning where Jesus is condemning the, the Pharisees And he says, don't call anyone rabbi, don't call anyone father. A father wasn't just a a term like it's used in the Roman Catholic Church today to refer to somebody who's a priest. It was a term that was used of a rabbi, mostly dead rabbis, who were considered to be as authoritative in their interpretation of the scripture as the scripture was. They had they were spoken of as if they had direct revelation from God, and so their opinions uh, were stacked up against uh, or over uh, the word of God. So that tradition is what Peter is, is talking about here. He says, it's you're not redeemed with corruptible things from your empty uh, tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now that phrase is related to what we just talked about in verse, uh, uh, verse 21, that, that, that Christ is without sin, that he is without sin. He's sinless. This expands that more clearly in the imagery of the lamb. The lamb was without spot or blemish. This was a lamb that would be brought to us to a sacrifice, specifically the Passover lamb, 
that when the Passover occurred, the first Passover occurred, and the Israelites were in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt, and they went through the nine plagues, and still Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Pharaoh told Moses to have everybody isolate a lamb. If it was a small family, then to get with another small family next door, and they would all have their meal together. But they would find a lamb, and they would ident- identify this lamb on the tenth of Nisan, and then they would watch the lamb for three and a half days to make sure it was without spot or blemish. It had to be impeccable and, and because that without spot or blemish would speak to the character of the, of the type that it was representing or the antitype, which is Jesus. And so they would pick a lamb, and this lamb, if you've ever seen a, a just spent time with an animal, with a lamb, and you just realize how innocent they seem. They are just as as soft, and they can be quite quite cuddly, and you're just looking at those uh, uh, brown eyes, and you realize, I'm going to have to kill this lamb because I sinned. He's going to die because of me. And that is a thought that is really driven home in these sacrifices. And so Christ is compared to this lamb, and he is going to suffer on our behalf. And in this picture, you see what would take place in the ritual where the person who's bringing the lamb as a sacrifice places his hand on the head of the lamb and then recites his sins. And what is happening ritually is those sins are being transferred from him to the lamb, to this innocent, spotless, uh, guiltless, innocent lamb. And then he is going to take the lamb and he will slit the throat of the lamb and the lamb will die. And that is because of your sin. That is a extremely strong image. Uh, Joel Kramer has a video on on the lamb and on what's it, the other one's called the sacrifice is that right Barb and um, and you, you ought to watch those there he goes through what happens at the Samaritan uh, Passover which is different from the Jewish Passover and they still have uh, ethnic Samaritans who go to the Samaritan temple up on Mount Gerizim and they they sacrifice uh, lambs and it's quite quite moving to think about that but that's the picture for every believer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus who was sinless, to be sin for us. There's that same phrase again, huper humon, on our behalf, instead of us, in our place. He was made sin or a sin offering for us in our place for the purpose that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, we have his righteousness. It's imputed to us. That's why we are declared righteous, not because of any morality or good on our part, but because we are covered with the righteousness of Christ, with his righteous white garments. Isaiah 64 says that all of our works of righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We come to God in these filthy garments, 
And God says, if you believe in Jesus, I'm going to put, he doesn't take those away. He puts a white robe on us that's the righteousness of Christ. And that's what he sees when he looks at us and he declares us righteous. Hebrews 4.15 expresses the same point. We We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In English, that's a double negative. It is saying we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's made like us. He was fully human, but without sin. And he was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. So he understands what we've gone through. He is like us in the sense that he is true humanity and been tested in every way. Then in Hebrews 9.28, we read, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That's substitutionary atonement. He is, stands in the place of many. Guess where that language comes from? comes right out of Isaiah 60, I mean Isaiah 53. It talks about the many there. That's those for whom Christ died. So when we look at First uh, Peter 2, 21 and 22, for this that is suffering unjustly, you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew sixteen twenty four. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, that's following him. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, when you think about that, Jesus says, first of all, if you want to follow me, this is not talking about if you want to go to heaven. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to grow to spiritual maturity, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, see, that's not part of the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not self-denial. That is believing in Jesus. That is justification. Discipleship goes beyond that. That's a believer in terms of their spiritual growth. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to do the Father's will, let him deny himself, number one. Number two, take up his cross. And number three, follow me. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by this is that is is important is based on an idiom that was understood at that time under the Roman Empire. First of all, it's to deny yourself. The essence of rebellion is to give in to ourselves. The essence of rebellion is to do what the sin nature wants us to do. We, I talk about the sin nature as being self-absorbed. When we are self-absorbed, then what do we do? We indulge ourselves. We give in to ourselves. That's not denying ourselves. That's the opposite of denying ourselves. So as a believer, first thing, we have to deny ourselves. We're going to say no to the sin nature, and we're going to say no to its self-absorption, and we're going to say no to its self-indulgence and its self-justification. The second thing is this idiom to take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, we see what happened with Jesus when he took up his cross. What was Jesus uh, condemned for? 
because he made himself out to be to be God and to be the king of the Jews, which was a an act that was viewed as rebellion by Rome. Now crucifixion was a horrible, horrible, violent death. It the the the, the person who was crucified went through horrible beatings. They were whipped till uh, the the flesh came off until their organs were exposed, and they were uh, then and they were beaten beyond recognition, and then they would be nailed to to the cross. In the process, they would be forced to carry the cross piece, the patabellum, over on their shoulders to the place of execution. Now, why would they do that? Because Crucifixion was only reserved for certain kinds of crimes, and one of those was the crime of insurrection or the crime of being a traitor to Rome. And they were being made an example of. And by carrying their cross to the place of execution, it was forcing them, it was, it was an act of forcing them to demonstrate their submission to the authority of Rome. So a lot of people will tell you a lot of different things about what it means to take up your cross. Taking up your cross in a Roman context was to submit, for, be submitted forcefully to the authority of Rome. Rome was asserting its full power over this person and forcing them to submit, and they're carrying their cross to the place where they're going to be executed because of their... Uh, insurrection against Rome and because of their rebellion against Rome and because they failed to respect the authority of Rome. So again, taking up your cross is an act of submission to authority. Interesting how these themes keep coming back. So uh, Jesus is forced to submit to the authority of Rome by taking his cross and going to uh, Golgotha. When he says this to his disciples, he said, first of all, you have to deny yourself, your sin nature. Second, you have to take up your cross, which is you have to submit yourself to the authority of the Father, and then you follow him. That's the progression. No to the sin nature, yes to the authority of God, and then following Jesus, doing what Jesus says to do, learning the word and applying the word, letting your mind be transformed uh, into the thinking of God. Now, when we look at our verse in 1 Peter one twenty-two, it says that he's on our example that we should follow, and that when it says that you should follow, that is a purpose clause, that the purpose for him suffering for us is that we should follow him, but it's a subjunctive, so it's not uh, mandatory, it's optional, it's left to our volition, but that's its purpose. You can say, no, I'm just going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to follow you because I really don't want to have to uh, submit to authority, I don't want to go, uh, go through injustice where I'm going to have to demonstrate grace orientation, I would just rather... Uh, be my nasty little old vindictive self. And then we have the quote from Isaiah 53, 9, showing that Jesus did not commit any sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He's perfectly sinless. And then verse 23 expands this and says, who, that is Jesus, 
when he was reviled, and the word there, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Now, you have two different words there for revile. They're related to each other. The first word is loidereo, which means to revile, to abuse verbally, or to criticize abusively. This would be verbal abuse today, very popular term. When he was reviled, when he's slandered, when he's yelled at, when he's insulted, he did not return that. And that's just another form of that word, anti loidereo anti meaning and in, in against or or uh, to revile back or to talk back he's silent like a lamb before its shears is done then it says that when he suffered and this is the word pasco and this refers to all manner of suffering and adversity anything that where life isn't going your way that's what suffering is some people say well i never really feel like i suffer well, if things don't go your way, then that's part of adversity, the adversity of life, whether you feel like it or not. It's not a subjective concept. It's, a, it's an objective concept. If you're living somewhere where you are restricted from being able to do the things you would like to do by government edict, then that is suffering for Jesus. If somebody gossips about you or slanders you, then that is suffering for Jesus. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways, some things we know and some things we don't know. And that's all within this general word, apasco, meaning to suffer. And it's used 11 times in First Peter. That's an interesting statistic. What do you think First Peter's talking about? How to handle suffering, biblically, okay? And then it says, and when he suffered... And usually when people suffer, they want to react in some way, usually with some kind of verbal sin. Uh, he did not threaten. That's the word uh, apileo. And it's, uh, it's used in the imperfect tense, which means continuing action. So when he, when he suffered or while he was suffering, he didn't um, threaten. He didn't continue to threaten because this lasted for a long time when he's going to on the road to the cross. They ridiculed him. They abused him. They verbally did things, slandered him, and accused him of all kinds of things. And he didn't continue to respond or respond at all to what they were saying. But instead, the contrast there, he committed himself. And this word is sometimes used of handing someone over. Uh, this is what Judas Iscariot did. This verb is used. He betrayed Jesus. He handed him over to the authorities. It's also used here. It has that idea of handing over. He handed himself over to him who judges righteously. He put it in God's hands. Now, what's the verse we hear at the end of First Peter in First Peter 5, 7? Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. It's the principle that is exhibited here. He handed himself over. He put his case in God's hands. Now, did that mean he didn't suffer? Did that mean he didn't go to the cross? Did that mean that he didn't have to go through hell on earth? Not at all. But he meant he knew that eventually God's justice is going to bring justice to the uh, situation of injustice. Then we come to 1 Peter 2.24. Now, in English, this reads, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, 
by whose stripes you were healed. Now, when we look at this verse in the English, there are several things that stand out here. We ought to say, what's this word bore? That's not a common word today. We know that it's the past tense of the word to bear, but how did he bear our sins? What does that mean? What does sins mean? What does it mean that he bore our sins in his own body? What, it, what does it mean that uh, we, having died to sins, how did we die to sins? might live for righteousness. What are we talking about here? This isn't talking about justification. And then, by whose stripes you were healed. Where does that come in? Okay, let's look at a couple of things. The reason I underlined our sins here in this first slide is that's the first phrase in the Greek text. So it says, literally, our sins who he himself bore. The emphasis is on our sins. The focal point at the beginning of the verse is our sins because that's the first uh, first phrase that we see in the verse. Our sins he himself bore. Now, this is an interesting word that brings a lot, pardon the pun, to bear on the verse. No pun intended. Okay, he himself bore our sins. And I've always wrestled with this. I had to memorize this verse years and years and years ago when I was going through the Navigator's uh, topical memory system. And I think this was in the second or third set. And it was it's a little awkward. I'm wondering, what does that mean, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree? And at the time, I never quite had the, the uh, uh, study tools to be able to look that up and come to an understanding of that. But the Greek word here is the word anaphero. The root word is pharaoh, and it means to carry something uh, or to bring something back or to raise something up. And you see some of the various ways in which it's, it's used. But this idea of offering a sacrifice is inherent to this concept. And let me show you how that happens. Okay, this word anaphero doesn't just pop up in Peter's vocabulary because he thinks, oh, this sounds like a good word. I think I'll use this. It comes out of, guess what chapter it comes from? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Isaiah 53, there you go. Gee, we've heard that several times already. Surely he has borne our griefs, talking about the suffering servants. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's, a, it's parallelism there. The carrying and bearing, these words are used in, in uh, synonymous parallelism. Griefs and sorrows are the effects of sin. The, the effects are put for the cause. It's poetry. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, as I note in the cutout here on the verb, the Hebrew word for born is the Hebrew word nasa. It is translated in verse 4 in the Septuagint by the Greek word pharaoh. In the second verse, in Isaiah 53, 12, where it says he was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? That means there's a thief on one side and a thief on the other. He is numbered or identified with the criminals. So that's a prophecy that's fulfilled on, the, on at Golgotha. 
He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. That, again, is the word anaphero, the same word that we have in, uh, in, in 1 Peter 2.24. So this language is sacrifice language. It's to offer a sacrifice. So it's the idea of uh, originally lifting or carrying something to the altar where it was sacrificed. And this is seen in how this word is used in passages in Leviticus. Leviticus 14.20 says that the priest shall offer, and this is the Hebrew word nasah, and here in the Septuagint it uses anaphero to translate that. The priest shall offer or shall bear the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar, so the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. Leviticus 16.22 at the bottom talks about the goat. This is in the situation where you have the scapegoat. You have the two goats on the Day of Atonement. One is the goat that that bears the sin of the nation, and he sacrifices and, and dies in a good cause. And then you have the other goat that is taken way far away, so far away that he won't be able to wander or find his way home. And he's the one who removes the sin as far away as possible so that they're not remembered or brought back. So the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. Same concept, it's a different different word though. So this is seen also in 1 Peter 2.5. Notice how aspects uh, that are brought out here have all go back to First Peter one, uh, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Also here, First Peter two five. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. That's the word on a Pharaoh. So this word, when it talks about He Himself on a Pharaoh, our sins. Is, is talking about a sacrifice that is being made. He carried as a sacrifice our sins in his own body. He physically died. Now, the physical death isn't what paid the penalty for sin, but it was part of the package. He couldn't just die spiritually because there's a consequence of spiritual death that is physical death. And how do we know there's such a concept as, as spiritual death? Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the word there. It can't be physical death because he's talking to the Ephesians who are now saved and saying that before you were saved, you were dead. It was some kind of death, and so that's not a physical death. Now, 1 Peter 2.24 goes on. He says, Who himself bore or carried our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins might live for righteousness. And this is a not only an unusual word, it's the only time this word is used in the Greek New Testament. It's apogitomai, and it means to die. And it's a participle, which means that it should probably be taken causally, that because we have died to sin. When did we die to sin? when we trusted Christ as our Savior, we're identified in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we, because we died to sin, might live for righteousness. The purpose that Christ, that, that God identified us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we would live differently, 
so that we wouldn't live according to our sin nature, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and by walking by the Holy Spirit, we would be able to live for righteousness. So that is the purpose here, that we might live, that our purpose is to live for righteousness. And then there's a reminder by whose stripes, that is, that he was whipped, uh, you were healed. And in Isaiah 53, the word healing is often used in parallel to uh, dying for sin. Uh, and so when you look at that, you know that healing there isn't, isn't the... Uh, healing for illness or healing for for uh, uh, you know some kind of uh, miraculous healing, but is the solving the sin problem. The word sozo is sometimes translated healing to deliver from illness. In this case, uh, it's talking about sin. Now Romans six three says, "Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized or identified into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death." We're identified with him. This is when this is when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. Therefore, Paul says, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That never happened to any believer prior to the church age. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. There, That's the same thing that, that Peter is saying over here, that we might live for righteousness. Paul says that we should walk in newness of life. And then he goes on to say, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, because we know this, that our old man, that is everything that we were before we were saved, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, the term body of sin refers to the sin nature, okay? Now, the word old, the old man doesn't refer to the sin nature, but because somewhere along the line in theology, the, the sin nature was referred to as the old sin nature, people got, the, got confused and they thought old man meant the sin nature. But right here, it's very clear that our old man was crucified with him. If the old man was crucified with him, that then it's dead. But it's not dead. And it, it happened for the purpose that the body of sin might be done away with in the future. That's the process of, of sanctification. About three weeks ago, I got an email. And the question was, Robbie, what do you think the old man means? And I said, it doesn't mean the sin nature. And I looked at, I put in passages in Ephesians uh, 4 and in Romans 6. I said, it doesn't mean that. It refers to everything that we were before we were dead. We have a new identity in Christ. The old man is dead, but it takes a while for the sin nature to be processed into death. And it doesn't happen completely until we're face to face with the Lord. And Jim Myers replied to me, she, he said, that's exactly what I think. Scary. <laughs> so we have a lot of fun together. And then in verse 25, for all, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And, you know, all through this, these quotes 
these allusions to Isaiah 53 is one reason why I think he's really writing to Jewish background believers because Gentile background believers wouldn't relate to any of this. The Isaiah 53, they wouldn't even know about it. So it, it, it reinforces what I said from the beginning that he's primarily writing to diaspora Jews in Central uh, Asia Minor or North Central Tur- modern Turkey. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, which is two titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes right out of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's self-absorption. Everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. That's from Judges. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. That's why he carried our sins in his own body, has laid on him, substitutionary atonement, the iniquity of us all. And so here's Isaiah 53, 7, the next verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. See, this is exactly what we saw here. He was reviled, but he reviled not. He, he uh, suffered, but he did not condemn uh, or threaten. He committed himself. Instead, he turned it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and that was exactly fulfilled. So next time, we're going to get into the servant's humility in Philippians chapter 2. We didn't make it tonight. And we'll make it next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of all that our Lord went through, that his submission to your authority to go through incredible suffering, even though he uh, cried out in prayer to let that cup pass from him. Nevertheless, he submitted and went to the cross and bore as a sacrifice in his own body on the cross, our sin, our penalty, and he died in our place. But he gave us an example because this was a ultimate example of injustice. And yet he submitted to injustice and put the eternal consequences in your hands so that he could complete his mission on the earth. And sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to submit to you and set aside our wishes, our desires, and what we think is right for us, and it may even be right for us. It may be the right thing that we're doing, but we are to set that aside in order to submit to your authority and let you work out the judicial retribution in your timing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.